Remember this moment. This is the week in technology where everything changed. It's an exciting time in tech. The advances, what's possible, uh, that's what obviously excites us. Hi, I'm Artemis. I am a computer-generated AI voice, and you're listening to Tech Radio. Every week online and on air with RTE Radio, we bring you the latest in tech. You're very welcome to episode 956. A little later on the show, we'll be chatting about the challenge of keeping your IT skills current with Professor Martin Hayes from the UL at Work Human Capital Initiative. But first, let's get to the big story of the week, possibly the year and most likely the decade. This is Tech Radio with Dusty Rhodes and Niall Kitson. So let's start with our Tech Essential Editor-in-Chief, Niall Kitson. Niall, you, you must remember Steve Jobs and that first time where he's going, yada, yada, new announcement this, new announcement that. And then he goes, thank you for coming. Oh, hang on. One more thing. And Eddie pops out with the iPhone, OK? And the world changed. I think we have had one of those moments this week because everybody seemingly has been chatting for the last two months about chat GTP and it's this and it's that and blah, 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 blah. Now the big boys this week are both falling over each other to make announcements. Who do we do go with first, Microsoft or we do go with Google? Well, let's talk about Microsoft because they had things, uh, they were much more together. Yeah. Um, so uh, maybe a little bit of background because we're we're talking about AI and generative AI, but we're looking at how it's going to integrate into the primary way that people interface with the web, which is of course through their browser. So what we're effectively looking at here is the the beginning of a new browser war. Can we get you to use our browser based on the quality of the AI that's going to be sitting in it? Right. So Microsoft came out with Chat, GD, Chat GPT. Said mm-hmm. that's that's what we're doing. We're working with OpenAI, mm-hmm. a separate company. We've bought in. This is this is where it's going to be at. Google have said we're doing this on our own with our own project called Bard, which is based on uh, the Lambda um, natural language uh, processing engine that they're they're doing. So let's look at some stats behind it and, and sort of the the uh, challenge Microsoft have ahead of them. Arguably, they've got the superior AI on this, and we'll talk about things that they're doing with Bing later. But uh, Google have 65.4% of the the, uh, browser market with Chrome. Over half the world uses Chrome, okay? Okay. And they've got 92.9% of search worldwide, right? You know, hence you Google something, you don't search for it. Um, Microsoft with Edge, their browser, Um, 4.46%. The only way is up. Similarly, with Bing, their search engine, 3.03%. The only way is up. Hmm. So I would argue that Microsoft at the moment has the superior technology and we'll talk about what what they're doing at Edge, but Google has the reach. That's very true. And Microsoft, I thought, made a quite a good presentation. Both Microsoft and Google felt very rushed. They didn't mm. feel like these were kind of well to get. They both felt like they were just rooms. Put some big screens in, for God's sake, and make some kind of a stage area. That's what it felt like with both presentations. It felt like, you know, some poor sod was told, we're doing a presentation tomorrow. You have 12 hours to put it together. It felt like that. However, uh, Microsoft did have a very good presentation. I was watching it. Um, 
And what they showed was a new Bing website, bing.com, with a big Ask Me Anything box. And when you would put a, a question into it, um, you would get all the answers that we're used to, which is a whole list of links and web pages with information on the right hand side. But on the left hand side is the AI and the AI is kind of responding to your query. So if you were to say the example they were giving was, give me, I'm going on holiday to Mexico. I need five things to do with my family. On the right hand side, there were a whole load of lists of bad things to do in Mexico and websites and all that. And on the left hand side, the AI said, hey, you're going to Mexico. Fantastic. Here's the thing, five things you should check out. You should do this. It's at this place. You should do that, da, 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 whatever. And at the end, it goes, have a great, have a great trip, <laughs> which I thought was funny, but it really, really condensed. And some, I can't remember who said it, but it was brilliant, right? We're talking about search engines, right? Mm. AI is an answer engine. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really nice way to put it. And like we were talking about the threat chat GPT is to Google because, you know, it's simple question and answer. There's no, none of this, you know, siphoning through pages kind of a thing. The way they did it, it blows Google out of the water. Hmm. But Google would have said, yeah, but you know, it's an imperfect data set. You know, you can't check your sources or anything like that. With the new version of Bing, you absolutely can. Yes. And that's going to, that's going to be what eats Chrome's lunch. Absolutely. And the other big difference is ChatGTP, GPT. God, my God, what a sexy name. Who came up with that? Um, the big problem, and a lot of people don't realise, is that all of the information that's been fed goes up as far as 2021. It mm. doesn't know that there's a world past 2021 and we're already in 2023. Uh, Microsoft's new service with Bing.com, bang up to date. And as mm. you say, not only is it bang up to date, but it is able to... Uh, show you in the footnotes where it's getting the information from for its answer. Yeah, which has always been sort of a, a, a question about mm. chat. Yeah. Uh, it's like, okay, you're telling us this, this stuff, but we know that it still has issues mm. with um, uh, with accuracy. Uh, of course, it, it's got issues with being up to date. It's also got some, you know, both AIs can give you some fairly weird answers and it seems to have problems with simple logic questions uh, as well. Um, I think there was, anyway, I'm not, I'm not going to dip into the, the various sort of brain teasers that they've been posed uh, and none of them have been good at solving. Um, yeah. So both are very imperfect technologies, but Google have been hoping that their greater reach in search will pull them through. Um, Microsoft, they can try anything. They're we starting at such, such a small base, it almost doesn't matter. We shall wait and see. By uh, compare and contrast, uh, Google also had a big announcement this week. It was all billed as a big announcement. It was like, oh my God, here's the battle. The, all of these giants are putting out their AI technologies and stuff like that. Uh, the Google Paris also had that feeling of it was something that was organised very much at the last minute. Um, and then they did actually very little of AI. They were kind of, we've got impro uh, improvements with our search based on okay. AI. <laughs> like they were trying to like they were talking about Google Translate that's an AI um, which I don't think it is um, th there was a very short demo of Bard and actually kind of what I liked what they did with their demo was you would put in a question and the AI would give it a short 
summarised answer underneath. So like when we're used to Googling at the moment, it's kind of like where the ads are at the moment. The first thing that you see will become what the AI is going to tell you. And then underneath that, then you will have all of your regular I kind of mm. thought presentation-wise, it, it, it was all right. Okay. Well, we do have to spare a thought for their search vice president, Liz Reed, who was given the, uh, the challenge of demonstrating multi-search on a mobile device. Oh, no. Uh, oh, the poor only, girl. Oh, the yeah. poor girl. Go on. Said mobile device vanished. Where's my Couldn't phone? Couldn't be found. Literally, Couldn't she was there. Found. Where's my phone? I haven't seen that uh, kind of disaster in a while. Good news, though, from Google. Uh, they've got their live view. Um... Uh, which is kind of like a augmented reality on the camera. So instead of like kind of like looking at your map and seeing where things are around you, what you do is you can just kind of point your camera up and down the street and it will mm. uh, have information within the camera view as, to, well, this is a coffee shop and here's all the reviews and this mm. and blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. That's interesting. That's coming to Dublin. Dublin's going to be one of the first cities in the world to get it. Oh, in, that's interesting. In, in the coming months. And also they're going to have this live view uh, for within airports. I think this is brilliant. Within airports, uh, train stations uh, and big public places like that. And you will be able to scan around with your camera and it will tell you where the toilets are, uh, where the restaurants are, where the exits are, where the meeting points are and all that kind of stuff. Especially like, you know, kind of if you're going to an airport, it's like, well, where are the departure gates and which Mm. direction is, you know, kind of gate number 42 or whatever it happens to be. Mm. I don't think it would be a problem for any of us in Dublin Airport, but if you're in Dubai or something like that where you wouldn't be on a regular basis, uh, it will be handy. Um, Google also kind of, they were talking about Google Translate and they said, um, they were doing this thing like, you know, well, some words have several meanings, like, you know, kind of a R-O-W. Now that could mean to row a boat or it mean, could mean to have a row with somebody. Uh, and I use Google Translate quite a bit. And I actually thought that it already did that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it gave you a list of all the different meanings of, of this particular word. Like, um, I, I, I could be wrong. Anyway, they went on about that. And then just a, such a short demo of Bard. And it really just seemed like they were doing it just to kind of keep up with Microsoft or to put Microsoft under pressure to announce something maybe they didn't want to. It just seemed like a bit of a, a, a tactic. It, it was just to show they have skin in the game. Yeah, it, That's it. Anyway, basically they said nothing. We're going to have to wait for uh, Google in it in May. However, back to Microsoft, who did do a very good uh, idea. Uh, you are able to try out and to see what it likes. Uh, you need to go to bing.com. And there you will see a box that says, ask me anything. Now, you can't actually ask it anything just yet, but it will give you, try this example or try that example. At least you can see how it might work or whatever. They will roll it out live in the coming weeks, months or whatever. But again, Microsoft are are, are terrible at this, at, at actually getting a product and getting it right. Like it takes them ages. And when they get it right, they're brilliant. But quite often... The damage is done by then. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. It just feels like it's kind of like they're still working on it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of like, this you know, is, if you're getting your is, house done up and the workman is yeah. still working on it, and you're saying, come on, finish up with the painting. My mother-in-law is coming to visit like next week. <laughs> this is agile software development, Dusty. It's like we do a little bit at a time, by the end of which you're annoyed with the product and they're working on something else. I'm going to take issue with you, Niall Kitson. Oh. And correct you on something with this whole AI thing, because I don't Ooh. think it's a battle of the search giants. It's a mm-hmm. battle of the AIs 
Because AI is not just used for search and it's not used used for answers. One of the big two things that have been going around about chat GPT is A, that people are able to put in sentences like, write me a uh, 3,000 word synopsis on this topic so that they mm-hmm. don't have to do their homework for school or college or whatever. So that's one issue. And then mm-hmm. the other thing that I keep hearing about is that AI is going to put people out of work. And I can understand a lot of people saying that because they kind of go like, you're, you're a journalist. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of yeah. like, well, why do I need a journalist? Okay. If I can say to this AI, okay, write me a 500 word article about blah, 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 whatever story. Boom. Done. Copy, paste, put onto my website. Journalist is out of a job. All right. So there a lot of people are worried about that. And I, I, I've got my own view on it. And I was delighted to see that uh, Satya who was being interviewed by the Wall Street Journal, said almost the same thing that I would have said. He was asked about jobs, and this is what he said. I think of this as going to help us do our jobs better. I feel it'll create more jobs. The barriers to knowledge work will come down. So I think that we're going to have new jobs get created and more job opportunities. And it sounds like more time. I outsourced some of my question writing to this freed up a little bit more of my time to do something else. And But you're still in, in the loop and you're in charge because you only, you get to accept the draft. That's kind of one of the metaphors I have. It's pretty much all computer interaction going forward. You'll start with a draft. That doesn't mean you don't get to inspect the draft, approve the draft, and edit the draft. So here is my point of view. AI is not going to take your job, but somebody using AI will. Ah, nicely posh. And on that note, uh, let's wrap up the news for this week. Niall Kitson, as always, thank you very much. Remember, you can get the latest Irish tech news with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website, techcentral.ie. So kind of continuing on the subject of uh, layoffs and jobs and AI and how things are going to work in the future. I mean, we're seeing huge layoffs in the tech sector at the moment. However, there are still plenty of work out there for developers and data scientists and security experts and, and the whole run of it. The question is, how do you keep a competitive edge by making sure that your skills are up to date and that you have the paperwork to say and prove that they are up to date. Professor Martin Hayes is Digital Technologies Academic Lead with the UL At Work Human Capital Initiative. We had a chat with Niall Kitson during the week about the role of training, development, and why it's not just about the degree, it's about how you manage your learning afterwards. One of the first things we hear about when we're talking about sort of the skills deficit and the content of courses is the longevity of the skills that you'll actually get from them. The conventional wisdom is that you know, when you leave college, your, your, your skill set might be good for maybe about 18 months. Is that still a very um, uh, negative way to look at things or are some skills everybody? Yeah, I mean, skills are a spectrum. There are some skills which will be timeless and will stand to you from the schoolyard right up until the end of your career. Uh, Critical thinking, being able to work well in teams, being able to develop that political capital easily. Those skills are timeless to an extent. In terms of digital technologies, in terms of engineering skills, there are different sets of skills that go into your toolbox. 
So if you're trying to program a chatbot, if you're trying to train a vision system, if you're trying to teach a robot to do new things, the types of skills, the types of languages that you'll use in order to do that, whether you use language at all, whether you use some type of no-code strategy, those are the types of things which will have shorter shelf lives. That's where you start talking about your 18 months, 24 months, half-life for your, your, your skills. So in all things, your toolbox will have multiple layers on it, and there'll be certain core skills that will stand to you for the rest of your life, and then there'll be certain skills that you'll have to keep polishing, and you'll have to keep finding what the new shiny toy is or the new shiny badge is on the beach, right? So it's a spectrum. One imagines that the tech sector in particular would be afflicted um, by the sort of the, the skills crisis, the skills gap. Have you found any improvement in this over time as the tech sector becomes uh, a more um, more desirable or, or a more interesting uh, employer to a lot of people? Yeah, I mean, to be fair to the tech sector and particularly the software and the skills side of that sector, they become very good in relation to you know, working well in teams, things like scrums, agile working practices, methods for people being able to get away from this old stereotype of one person struggling with one laptop or one computer on their own in a room with no access to natural light. So they have moved away and the idea of short, sharp, focused training, which gets people in your group up to a certain level and grows your group skill level so as that you can achieve large-scale projects and have the capacity to achieve large-scale projects. They put a lot of work into that. And to be fair, they are focused very much on the these sharp um, professional diplomas, as we call them, the things that can build into higher awards. So rather than focusing on degrees as universities traditionally have had to, we've had to think about micro-credentials. We've had to think about shorter, sharper programs of learning where people can develop their expertise more quickly. That's a really interesting point about moving towards micro-credentials because, of course, traditionally in the past, there seems to be a, a divergence between people looking to, you know, maybe to go to college and study degree level or to maybe join uh, a professional organization and work towards CPD points. Uh, is micro-credentials sort of the, the new middle ground where you can sort of be, I suppose, confident in the accrediting body uh, while still meeting these sort of uh, rapid turnover of skills? We think so. I mean, as universities, <laughs> you won't be surprised to note that a representative of the university system is making the case for a credential-based uh, approach to learning. But, you know, I'll do it anyway. The The fact of a micro-credential as being that short, if you like, launch pad into a new discipline, we found it particularly for companies that are going on embarking on digital transformation journeys. The idea of that first module, which might be a quarter or a fraction of a diploma, uh, six or 10 credits, as we call, you know, the idea of it being only a fraction of an award, but it being important in terms of, first of all, you're able to be part of a team um, and be able to function as part of a team. Second of all, you might be able to think about if we're thinking of data analytics or something the idea of how important data is to you and how important visualizing data properly and making decisions based upon that data in a structured fashion 
is to, that's the kind of thing that you can get across very quickly to people. I mean, we've noted that particularly in our data analytics professional diploma that we're offering here, the idea of a six-week program right at the start wherein people can visualize their data. And even if they're not bringing their own data, we have our own Premiership Soccer and various other open source data sets that we, we, we have for people to play on so that people can actually make their own choices in terms of the data that's important to them and then ask about how decisions might be made on the basis of that. That's the kind of thing that people can do very quickly. And it becomes a taster to the longer, um, more in-depth, the things where statistical learning, where you know, higher level mathematics and more rigorous material that might be needed. But people can get up to speed and people can get started quickly. And the idea of starting people quickly in that community of practice setting so is that, you know, people aren't left on the beach, that the idea is, is that in six weeks you can get to a certain level where you feel competent, you can use the tools, be it R, be it Python, be it whatever, you can do something practical but also meaningful, and you can also get the benefit of what other people are doing in an industrial setting. So the idea of being able to listen to masterclasses, for example, from industrial speakers, so is that you can get an idea of, well, oh, these are the decisions they're making, and these are how the calls that they're making in terms of displaying their data. It's very, we feel it's very empowering for students, and we feel it's a great way for them to start. So let's talk about that overlap with industry then. Uh, the SME sector and the multinational sector occasionally, maybe not so much at odds, but adopting very different working models. How do you manage the relationship between both? And do you find people look to work for the Googles, the Microsofts, the, the Facebook, or do others go, do you know what, I, I like the flexibility of the startup environment. What's going on there that I can apply myself to? Well, everybody's package is different, right, in terms of what they want to look for in a prospective employer. And we're at a stage, a full employment economy where people, if they have the appropriate skills in their bank, can actually drive very hard bargains, right? So that's um, that's a great thing to be able to say about an economy just as we are, we're coming out of the pandemic. Uh, it's, it's a great time to have skills and it's a great time to be able to call those types of shots. Uh, in terms of being responsive, um, as part of the UL at Work program funded by the Human Capital Initiative, uh, a big plank of what we're trying to do is that it is co-designed with industry, co-delivered with industry. The industry has a real input as part of our advisory panels in terms of the course layout, course structure, the types of exercises that we ask of our students. And so very much at each step of the line, we basically said to our employers, right, are you happy with the way this program looks? Are there things that should be added? Should we be asking them to do different things? And then, and it's all, clearly a self-interest from our perspective. The idea is we're, t we're removing the reasons why students shouldn't come on our courses. So if we have strong testimonials from industry that what we're doing is the right thing and that we are getting recommendations from managers within industry, say, so, well, would you send your people on this program? Well, then we think that we're on the right track. So that's why it's really important for us to have that industrial input and input from both SME and multinational sources. Because the timelines, the requirements, the specific skill bases that the particular 
companies' needs will determine and will be determined by their size and will be determined by their capacity to deliver. So there will be different needs. And it's not easy to hit all the right um, buttons at all the right times. But we, by having this enterprise advisory panel where both SME voices and multinational voices can come together, we find it's the best way to, to design our programs. Following on from that program design then, I suppose the idea then is to introduce people not to the idea of, okay, degree, world of work, and that's, that's it, but to introduce people to the idea of lifelong learning, that your career is going to progress along with your skills, along with your educational experience. One of the things that we are starting to see more of is the introduction of the four-day week. Do you see any overlap between sort of the need for people to keep upskilling with sort of getting that time in the week back where you're not letting, where you're not, not in that work mindset? Oh, it's essential. The days of people giving up Thursday nights and Saturday mornings in order to be able to upskill are numbered. And I think, to be fair, industry recognises that themselves. They are making more demands. People are always on. Uh, time poverty has never been such a thing as it is now. So the idea of there being time and space within the working week. Now, people sometimes give me uh, abuse over, well, I'm confusing two different things here. The idea of a four-day week and having time and space in the working week in order to study. And clearly, the right answer has not been determined yet in terms of what needs to come through at a European and a national level in terms of people being able to have that time and space that they need. But what is clear is, is that some type of structured time where people can effectively put on their out of office and say, well, I am now in personal development time is necessary because people need that grace period in order to be able to think clearly where you haven't got your Slack alerts, your email alerts, your Teams, whatever is coming through. You know, you have to be able to say, no, I always remember my supervisor, I start my PC, you have to be able to timetable your research. You have to, if you're teaching a class, then you, you, nobody would come in and give you an email or you wouldn't be expected to read it. So just when you commit to learning and when you commit to your research, when you commit to anything, you have to timetable it and it has to be fair and it has to be something that everybody buys into as being essential and necessary for people to go through. So whether that's within the context of a four-day week and the fifth day is for personal development or within the context of the four days that you give to your company that there is some time there for personal development. And there are certain disciplines that are much better at doing this than others. I mean, I I, I, I won't name, call the disciplines by, by, but the idea of training days and learning days there are certain disciplines and certain professions that do this a lot better than others, right? So we just, I think, just want some constancy and some uniformity when it comes to this. Yeah, and, uh, and again, we've we've had this uh, massive um, reevaluation of what the world of work or what, what the the working week should be over the last few years with COVID, when employers realised that you know working from home. Uh, very often improves productivity, uh, even though there's not the same level or style of oversight. Is there going to have to be another change in mindset where employers go, well, you know, they're not in on a Wednesday or a Friday or whatever, but my productivity gains or my revenue gains are going to be down the road uh, when people are able to apply new skills that are potentially more profitable than my competitors. Absolutely. That all boats will rise if skill levels in your company are rising. 
and I think companies do see that, but joining the dots, that little bit between making time and space for people to be able to upskill and the idea of the skill levels in your company being high enough in order to be competitive. And also the cost of replacing skills, if for example, you lose people or if you wanted to recruit people with new skill bases, you know, how expensive that is, the idea of actually this cost trade-off analysis needs to be done. And ultimately, it comes back to adult-to-adult conversations. Companies have that have uh, fostered these adult-to-adult conversations with their employees are the ones who are prospering. The companies that are engaging in adult-child type, well, you must be here at a certain time, or you must punch this clock at this particular time, they are, in general, not succeeding. That's right. That's kind of flies in the face of conventional corporate culture where you have massive workforces that consequently need massive oversight. So so goes the, the thinking. Is that yet another change that we're going to have to see uh, corporations and I suppose HR departments in particular uh, adjusting themselves towards the productivity-based mindset? Absolutely. So you have certain jobs of work that need to be done uh, there are certain amounts of hours that are required in order to be able to, and that it has to be goal focused as opposed to time focused. And I, I, look, this idea of modern management is no new thing. I mean, we see more and more companies adopting this agile mindset towards the delivery of new work and new working practices associated with it. And it just all comes back to treating people like grownups. And not assuming that people are trying to get away with stuff if they're just not at their desk. So I think more and more of these conversations are beginning to happen, and this is more and more of a feature of the the 21st century workplace. One area that we kind of have to address now when it it comes to, you know, any educational qualification is what happens when people try to sidestep the the actual process. And and one of the great uh, unfortunate neighbours in that is, is AI. How are we actually going to start rooting out or dealing with AI as sort of a, a shortcut to gaining a, a qualification that you just haven't earned? Now, that's a deep question, right? And there are lots of easy headlines which have been written recently in relation to the amount of cheating that's going on, particularly in relation to higher level education, online assessments, um, group working, um, And it's clear to see that we're in a state of flux. There are lots of new tools that are being promoted by the various learning management systems that are out there in order to foster engagement, in order to make it easier for people to do the work themselves rather than copy other people's efforts. But we are going to see headlines. We are going to see headlines of various chat GPT domains that have worked and have been successful and... Clearly, there are challenges for academics. There are charge for teachers to ensure that fairness is a hallmark of the system and that you are accurately assessing your students' talents. But I think we all agree that we don't want to go back to nothing but terminal exams. That two and a half hour terminal exam was one window into one person's soul and it was undeniable, but it's also quite unrealistic and unrepresentative of the world of work. The world of work is about working in teams. It is about you're producing things over longer periods of time 
and it is not your standard exam environment, right? So we have to find this balance and we're not at steady state and we won't have all the right answers for a year or two yet. But I see I was at the online education conference OEB in Berlin just before Christmas and some of the new tools that are coming out for engagement, for accurately tracking student participation in classes, for making it, you know, just much more difficult for people to cheat the system. Technology will catch up, but there will always be people who cheat. I mean, there's the old saying, if you're not cheating, you're not trying. And we see that this is going to be a fa a feature in academic life. But, you know, it will be part of our jobs to try to catch these people and to, to make it less rewarding for people to try it. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, we have to fall back on the, well, who are they fooling at the end of the day? If they'll be caught out at some point. Because at some stage, they'll have to be able to rely on their own efforts and resources. So should we be designing systems with the lowest common denominator in mind? Probably not. What we need to do is we need to use the tools in an ethical and well-designed way with our instructional designers so as that, first of all, learning is fun. B, becoming an expert is... Uh, we do it, we optimize it as well as possible so that you're working with your community of practice as well as possible. You are working with um, your well-designed learning materials as well as possible so as that, you know, you, you, you're learning as, as, as efficiently and as optimally as you can. And then after that, at some point, it must come back to student responsibility. You know, at the end of the day, <laughs> we do our best. And after that, if people still want to cheat, well, then so be it, right? And that was Professor Martin Hayes, Digital Technologies Academic Lead with the UL at Work Human Capital Initiative, chatting with Niall Kitson. You can find a link to the initiative in the show notes on your podcast player right now. This is Tech Radio. That's it for our Tech Radio show for this week. There are more stories that we didn't have time for, including Dell's Job Cuts plan here in Ireland. Zoom's boss takes a 98% pay cut and entries are officially open for the 2003 Tech Excellence Awards. You'll find all of that on our website at techcentral.ie. We're back again next Friday on RTE Radio 1 Extra. And of course, you can get new episodes automatically by clicking follow on your podcast player right now. Until next time, for myself, Dusty Rhodes, and from Niall Kitson, as always, take care. Tech Radio is produced by DustPod.io. From me, Artemis, goodbye. Goodbye.